we have been in this series since the beginning of 2020, very first Sunday of this new year, in the book of Colossians, in a series that we have entitled Satisfied. And we've talked about even the graphic behind me that we are living in one of those uh, two spectrums. We're living in a place that maybe be dry, it, it, it maybe maybe feel barren, it maybe uh, maybe we we just we just feel lost, and we're living in that quadrant of that graphic that's behind me, or we're living in that in that green in that lush quadrant that's behind me that symbolizes maybe we're experiencing growth in our life, we're, we're experiencing satisfaction in our life, we're experiencing that contentment that comes from being satisfied in our lives. And we would say, by God's grace, I celebrate that, I am, that I'm living in a season to where I'm growing in my walk with the Lord, I'm seeing the results that it's having in my life. And what we said is, is, is whether or not you are experiencing difficulties in your life does not determine which one of those quadrants that you are living in, but rather, if you are living in the lush part of that graphic or you're living in the desert part of that graphic, it's determined by where you are finding, or better yet, who you are finding your satisfaction in. And really reminding ourselves of the truth, or maybe some of you for the first time have realized as we've been walking through this book of Colossians, that satisfaction can only be found in Jesus Christ. That that is where satisfaction is found. That thing that we all are looking for, regardless of if you believe in Jesus as your Savior or you don't, we're all looking for, the, for, for satisfaction. But really looking at God's word on how do we find it? How do we live in it? How do we experience it? So that's what we've been looking at. And we're getting close to closing out this series here in a few weeks. But I want you to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, we're going to look at two verses this morning. Let me say that. We're going to look at verses 18 and 19. But I want to give you a definition of what we mean by satisfaction in Jesus. Satisfaction in Christ. We've given this every week, so if you've been here, you call this place your home, you have this definition, but if you're new with us, let me give it to you. Here's what we mean by being satisfied in Jesus Christ. It's believing and experiencing that Jesus is better. Believing that, but also experiencing in that. That if you place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've come to a place where you believe that Jesus is the Savior of your sins, that his perfect life was lived to replace your sinful life, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose again three days later so that you can have a relationship with him. You've come to a place where you believe that Jesus is better than the way that you used to live. But what does it look like to take that knowledge? Because as you are a follower of Jesus Christ, for longer in your life, what we can have a tendency to believe is that knowledge is all there is. If I know more, then that's automatically going to result in me doing more. And oftentimes, that's not the case, though knowledge is important. So it's not just believing that Jesus is better, but it's me taking that knowledge, that belief, and applying it to every facet of my life so that I also can experience that Jesus is better. And the Holy Spirit through Paul, Paul being the one who wrote the book of Colossians to the church at Colossae, that we've been informed from God's word on how we are satisfied in Christ. And so we come to verses 18 and 19. Would you look at verses 18 and 19 with me? Just two small verses, but 
Let not that deceive you into thinking that we're going to be out early this morning. Uh, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3 say this. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, here's what I, here's what I realize. That I've already now, up, uh, I've already got a wall up. Because some of you wives are like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, we could have slept in. Like, we just time changed Sunday. Like, we didn't have to come today. Like, I'm so glad that you guys are here, guys being wives. I'm so glad you're here. Husbands, you're not left out of this conversation this morning either. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, here's, here's what I love about God's word in the book of Colossians. Is because for chapters one and chapter two, it's all been about Paul or the Holy Spirit, should I say, through Paul, reminding us that Jesus deserves first place in our lives, that he's preeminent. Whether or not he's preeminent in your life does not determine whether or not he is preeminent over all things. Let's get that straight. So just because I'm not maybe acknowledging him as that in my life does not determine that that is true of him. And so Paul is making clear Jesus is before all things, he's above all things, in him he holds all things together. He is preeminent, he is first place. He's driving that home in chapters one and two, and now we've come to chapter three, and it's like, well, what is the practical implications in my life by me believing that Jesus is better? That's why we have our definition. So what does it look like now as we come to chapter three for me to experience that Jesus is better? How do I take that belief and apply it to my life? And last two weeks we talked about, well, that involves me living with a heavenly perspective and the way that I do that and seek the things that are above and set my mind on the things that are above is I need to daily say, I'm gonna put to death these things, these sins that can be evident in my life that I still struggle with. I need to put those things to death on a daily basis, and I need to make a conscious choice to put other things on, and we looked at that last week, and if you are new with us or you missed last week, you can go to our website, you can watch it online, you can listen to it online, whatever you want to do, I encourage you to do that, and I love how now, all of a sudden, it's like, now we're going to talk about your home. So we've talked about your personal life and, and how you experience that Jesus is better. Now we're going to talk about your home, and today we're going to talk about marriage, and next week we're going to talk about what does it look like for children to believe that Jesus is better and obeying their parents, and what does it look like for dads to, to parent and lead their households in their homes. And what I love is, is the Holy Spirit's like, no, 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 we're going to get real practical now in chapter three, real practical, because it's not just enough to believe it, you also need to experience it. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here's the title of the message. Marriage is a verb. Now, yes, I know grammatically marriage is a noun. But marriage is not just something that is a state or a box that you check on an application. Marriage is something that you do. And the actions are found in verses 18 and 19. Paul is going to give us this morning... The Holy Spirit through Paul is going to give us this morning, what does it look like to have a marriage that communicates that Jesus is better? So here's the main idea that I want us to understand this morning, and it's also going to be the same idea next week as well. It's this, that a satisfied heart, we've defined that, what satisfaction in Christ looks like. A satisfied heart is the result of Christ being exalted in your home. 
Here's what I found in my life, that when there's disharmony in my home, when there's contention in my home, when there's disunity in my home, it does not lead to me experiencing satisfaction. It is actually the contrary. And so part of a satisfied heart is the result that I understand, I believe it, and I'm living it out that Christ is going to be exalted in my home, in my marriage, in my family. Now here's what I also know. That some of you are here and you're like, well, I don't have kids and I'm not married and I have, doesn't look like right now it's coming down the pike next week. So therefore, I could have slept in this morning. But here's what you need to understand. Whether you are married, whether you're engaged to be married, whether one day by God's grace in your life you get married one day, this is for you. God wants you to hear this today. And what does it look like for Christ to be exalted in my marriage? Can I point us back to a verse that I already said in Colossians 1 at the end of verse 16 and look at verse 17 where Paul says, all things, say those two words with me, all things. Doesn't say some things, doesn't say a few things. No, 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 all things, which encompasses everything, has been created through him and, say these two words with me, for him. Can you say those two words with me? For him. Doesn't say, sometimes you wish it would, right? All things have been created through him and for you. Now it says for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him, can you say these, the rest of the verse with me, Verse end of verse 17, all things hold together. Now listen, you've gotten some extra sleep, so there's no reason for you to be sleepy this morning. No sympathy for you. So let's read it all again, everybody included. Ready? And in him, all things hold together. Now the reason why I point us to these two verses in chapter one, because you're like, Johnny, I thought we were in chapter three, verses 18 and 19. Why are we backtracking? Because I want you to understand in regards to marriage, we can make two conclusions that we can draw from the end of Colossians 1 verse 16 and all of verse 17 in regards to your marriage. Whether you're in one, whether you hope to be in one, whether you're about to be in one, or you're thinking this one's about to be over. Here's two conclusions we can draw from Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Number one, your marriage, soon to be marriage, or one day hope to be marriage, is not ultimately for you, it's for Christ. So important. Because a lot of us would say, well, you know, I want a great marriage, and I'm in one, I'm engaged to be in one, one's not in a good place, I hope to be in one. You know, a lot of times we just think, man, if if we can just get along and we can be happy, and man, I think we're batting a thousand. And I wouldn't tell you that that, that's, that's that's a wrong thing to want to experience. But get me, hear me on this, I don't experience that without understanding that marriage is not ultimately for me. It's to give Jesus glory. It's to communicate that there is a man and a woman in that marriage that believes that Jesus is better. Not that they're not free from problems, not that they're not free from conflict, but what gets them over that is they believe that Jesus is better. Marriage is not ultimately for you, it's for Christ is to reflect him. And I say that, that's why I had you repeat it in the end of verse 16. All things, include your marriage, is for him. 
Now, here's another conclusion that you need to understand, because I know some of you may be in this place. Your marriage that you believe is beyond hope. And I'd be naive to think that there are, in a crowd this size, there are not people in this room that believe that. You may be even sitting next to that person. You're like, it's beyond hope. Well, when I look at verse 17 and I think to myself, wait a minute, if we have two people in that marriage that you think is beyond hope, that wants to believe, that wants to experience that Jesus is better, then I look at verse 17 and when it says he is before all things and in him all things hold together, I look at that marriage and I'm like, wait a minute, if you have two people in that marriage that they have wronged each other, they sinned against each other, they betrayed one another, they've cheated on one another, whatever the circumstance may be, when, when there are two people that want to believe that Jesus is better, this verse tells me that no marriage is beyond hope. Because if that's the case, then God's a liar. Two important conclusions. So what I want to give you in this passage of Scripture, and I just mentioned the implications of Colossians 1, 16 and 17, to get our minds into thinking, let's not make conclusions that are not biblical. What characterizes a marriage that exalts Jesus? If a satisfied heart is the result of Christ being exalted in my home, then what characterizes a marriage that exalts Jesus? I want to give you two characteristics. The first one is not found in Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Because Colossians 3, 18 and 19 are what wives and husbands, how they're to conduct themselves in their marriage. But I think it's important that we remind ourselves or maybe understand for the first time God's design for marriage. See, that's the first characteristic of a marriage that exalts Jesus Christ is you have, a, you have a husband and a wife that have a biblical understanding of God's design for marriage. Now, let me say this from the beginning. I have a challenge this morning to speak on marriage in one message. Some of you can't feel that, that struggle. Trust me, it's a struggle. And I know that there's nuances out in this crowd that you're like, you're going to hear God's word, and you're going to be like, well, well, what about this? He didn't touch on this, and he didn't touch on that. Listen, this is a series in and of itself, but these are the next two verses in the book. So what I want to do is give you an overview so that we can understand verses 18 and 19 better, but we got to start all the way back in Genesis. So would you turn to me to Genesis chapter 1, and as you're turning there, let me also say what I know to be true in this room, that there's a lot of ideas in regards to marriage. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of things that we're faced with every day that tell us what marriage is, who it's for, how it's to function. And so when we come to a topic like this and we go to God's word and we see what God has to say and allow him to speak for himself and his word to speak for itself in regards to marriage, here's a question that we need to ask ourselves. And the question is this. Do I believe that my thoughts or, opinion, or opinions or what other, others tell me is more inerrant than Scripture? Here's another way to say it. Do I believe this morning that my thoughts, my opinions, what others may be telling me about marriage is more perfect than God's Word? That's what inerrant means. Because 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says this, I feel like I'm a broken record with these verses, but you may not feel so, so I'm going to say them again. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture. Can you just say that word, first word with me? All. All. Not just the parts that I like, not just the parts that agree with the culture, not just the parts that make me feel good. No, no, no. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for what? What's it good for? Like, why do we open this up every, every Sunday? Why do we tell you you should open it up every day? What's it good for? Well, thankfully, God gives us the answer. It's for teaching, it's for rebuking, it's for correcting, it's for training in righteousness. Why? Why have I been given God's word? It's good for those things, but what's the purpose? So that the servant of God, that's you, that's me, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. No one would argue with me this morning that marriage is a good work. Hopefully you're saying that if you're married. And so what, what, the way that I apply 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 in this context is God words, God's word tells me how to be equipped to have a marriage that brings satisfaction and exalts Jesus Christ. So in Genesis 1, 26 through 30, give me enough time to turn there, right? Look at, look at verses, verse 26, because these verses give an overview of God's design for marriage. You may not realize this, but chapter 1 is kind of like a 30,000-foot view description of creation. And then in chapter 2, it like dies into the details. So we're going to look at both, but look at God's overview designed for marriage. And I'm not going to have time to read every single verse in these passages of Scripture, so I hope you write them down. Genesis 1.26 starts off this way. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. Verse 27 is key. So God created man in his own image, in God's image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. In other words, have dominion over the fish of the sea. And he goes and he lists that they are to rule over all of God's creation. Why do we go to this passage of scripture when we're talking about marriage, because what's important for us to understand, if we're going to understand God's design for marriage, is first of all, that man and woman are made in the image of God. You need to understand that you are made in God's image. In other words, that how I'm made reflects who God is. And it's the thing that makes me different from every other thing that God created in this creation account. Like, have you ever thought about, like, even some of the laws that we have? Why, God forbid, if I went out and I murdered someone and I did it premeditatively and I wasn't in self-defense and I murdered someone, you know what that means? I'm going to go to jail either for the rest of my life or I'm going to be put to death. Why? Why would that have a different punishment than if I go out in the woods somewhere and I find an eight-point buck and I'm like, yes, this has been my goal, one of my goals in life, to have that head on my wall. Why is there a different punishment for shooting, or no punishment, unless I don't have a permit, for shooting a deer than going and killing a person? Especially in a society that is struggling to even believe that there's a God. Why? Because in the fabric of our laws is that man and woman 
are different. They're made in the image of God. That's significant. Verse 27 says that. And what we need to understand, because there's so much confusion in regards to gender and marriage and all of that, and when I look at this, I'm like, wait a minute, if I'm a guy, regardless of my struggles, my gender, that I am who I am, and it's, it's been made to reflect God's image. And if I'm a woman, Regardless of my struggles, I've been made a woman to reflect God's image that my femininity or my masculinity and who I am, regardless of I've been wired and made in the image of God, that that gender is to reflect God's image. And then take from that, my marriage is to reflect God's glory. That that's what it's created for. That's why we read Colossians 1, 16. Adam and Eve were perfect. God is what? God is perfect. Adam and Eve functioned in partnership. I don't know if you noticed or not, but how many times in verse 27 and 28 the word them is mentioned? Three times. If you're slow in counting, three times. You know what that tells me? That that marriage is a picture of how God functions. And, and this, I know, blows our minds. We'll never be able to fully understand it, how the Trinity works and God is one, but there's three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and how do they function? They function in partnership together. Did you notice in verse 26 it says, let us make man in our image. So my marriage, my gender is made to reflect the image and glory of God. So that's an overview of God's design for marriage, who marriage is for, why it was created, why genders were created. Now we come to chapter two. Now we're gonna zoom in, because chapter two, remember, is the, is the more specifics in regard to creation. Look at verses 15 through 18. We're gonna see God's design for marriage at ground level. We're off of the airplane, now we're on the ground. Verse 15, then God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat it, you will surely die. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Verse 18, then God's, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now we don't have time to read the rest of 18 through 20, but let me, let me give you a synopsis of what is happening, and you can be going along if you want to as I'm talking out loud. But then God all of a sudden puts Adam in a scenario. He's, given, he's given this job to name all the animals. Don't tell me how that happened, how long it took to make that happen. I have no idea. I wasn't there. But I can't think of personally a more laborious task than to do that, but nevertheless, God is giving Adam this task, and all these animals are passing by, and however that happened, I don't know, maybe supernaturally, God is, or Adam is naming those animals. Now, what did the Lord say? There was not, let me make sure I get it right here, verse 18, it's not good that man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him, and then God is allowing Adam to see, well, that animal has a mate, and that animal has a mate, and that animal has a mate. Now, here's what's interesting. You will not find in Genesis 2, 15 through 18, that Adam all of a sudden, bing, the light bulb comes on, and he's like, hey, God, uh, what about me? What about me? Uh, is there somebody for me? Like, Adam doesn't come to that conclusion. God actually is the one that mentions, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Newsflash, 
Guys, if you're married, you already know this, you needed a helper. We got one guy who gets brownie points. <laughs> Rest of you guys, you totally missed. Like I threw an underhanded softball pitch and you just took it. <laughs> Except for the one guy, good for you. Every guy who's married in here should be yes, yes, amen, amen. Which I've often thought to myself, for guys who go their entire lives and they're single and, and, that, and that's, that's God's purpose for them, man, they, they are more special than me because I needed to help her. But look at verses 21 through 25. So all of a sudden, the first surgery that happens, you medical people, first surgery that ever happens in the Bible. So God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man and, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed it up in his flesh and and all of a sudden, here is this woman that God created. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, this is at last, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Verse 24 and 25. Now, now the Lord's going to give the purpose for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We're not focusing on their, the man needing to leave his mommy and his daddy. Like, that's another message, right? That's the, we're not going to talk about that. But hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First thing I want you to see here in God's design for marriage is, once again, God wants, make, wants to make clear that Adam is different than the animals. I'm about to make a facetious statement here, but I'm going to make it anyway. Adam's not like, well, God, maybe a lion can be my helper or any other animal. No, no, no. Why? Because man was made differently than the rest of creation in the sense that man was made in the image of God. There's something special about man. He has a soul. He's created in God's image. An animal's not going to be suitable for him. So what does he do? God creates this female, this companion. And what's so unique about Adam's companion? Can we allow God's word to tell us? First of all, it's created by God. We see that, right? It's, not, it's, it's, it's God's gift to Adam. This companion is made in the image of God. We read that in chapter 1, verse 27. Just like man, woman's made in the image of God. This companion is a different gender than Adam. We see that in verse 22. This companion is called female. Listen, let me say this as a side note, and I, and I wish I could talk, spend more time on this, but let me just say this because I don't want anyone to draw the, a wrong conclusion. Listen to me. You d we know that there are society and people that we even know and we love that live differently than what we're talking about here. And if there's someone that doesn't know Jesus and hasn't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I ought not to be surprised by that. And I ought not to show love to, those, to, to, to someone who is, who is living a lifestyle contrary to what we're talking about. That's why I'm here. I'm here to show that Jesus is better. So let no one walk out of here to say that we are saying, oh, we're going to stiff arm anybody that doesn't believe what, what we're fighting in God's word. No, no, no. What I'm trying to say is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the way that God has told us to live. And let's be careful not to allow what others think who don't believe that this Bible is God's word and don't believe that Jesus is their Savior to shape the way that I do if I believe that. 
Jesus loved and showed love and shared the message of hope with so many people. He spent more time with people that didn't believe that than said that they did. So let no one walk out of here making that conclusion. I just say that as a side note. But what we see here is we can't ignore that this companion is a different gender than Adam, a female. Adam recognizes that she's different. Like, think about this. Adam was a 10. There was no flaw on Adam. He wasn't like, man, God, I need to lose 10 pounds. He's perfect. He can eat whatever he wants and not gain weight. What an amazing thing. We don't see that in God's word, but I'm guessing he's perfect, so there's no calories in the Garden of Eden. What an amazing thing, right? But that also means that God created Eve perfect. Eve was a 10. And Adam recognizes that because look at what he says in end of verse 23. He sees her and he's like, wow, where has she been? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of mine and she shall be called woe man. <laughs> like guys, I'm just giving you another help. Next time you see your wife in the morning, woe man. I am so thankful that when I see you, you are a woe man. He obviously recognizes that she's different. Now, what's his design for their marriage? I, I don't want to lose this. And the reason why I'm giving you this, and you're like, why don't we get into verses 18 and 19? Well, we need to understand God's design, how it functions without sin. And what is that design as described? First of all, they view themselves as one flesh. We see that in verse 24, that they're no longer two people. They're viewed by God as one flesh. That's the beauty of a marriage. That when, that when you have two people that love one another, and you got that guy and you got that girl, and they're standing in front of one another and before God and all the people that love them, and they're saying to one another that, I'm going to love you and you're going to love me. That what's awesome is, is, is now God views you as one flesh and so should you. That's why couples over time have taken the last name. The wife has taken the last name because it's no longer two, it's one. There's your one flesh. Here's another design of God's marriage described. There's no shame no shame in the way that God's designed a marriage. There should be no shame in a marital relationship. Verse 25, notice it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's not just speaking of a sexual relationship. It's literally communicating that there's complete transparency, that I'm not hiding anything from you and you're not hiding anything from me. What you see is what you get. Complete transparency, complete intimacy, physically, emotionally, spiritually. There's complete harmony. Like, like they're, they're who they are and they're not ashamed. Like I love you for you and you love me for me. That's God's design for marriage. And here's another design for marriage. And we see this at the end of chapter 1 verses 28 through 30. I read that in the end of verse 20 that we already read. That husband and wife are to function as partners. Remember how many times in verses 27 and 28 does the Lord say them? He doesn't say man. He says them. The woman was given, as we see in chapter 2, for companionship, to multiply, right? To, to 
continue on the human race, to help the man and ruling over God's creation, to help him. That's why she's called a helper. It's not saying man is king and man sits on his throne with his scepter and sticks it out and tells his wife what to do. It's not, it's not that idea at all. And it's not him being passive and saying, do whatever you want. I'm just going to do what I want. No, no, no. They were in partnership together. There's partner language. And the last thing about God's design for marriage that I see in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is it's to reflect who God is in his glory, right? We see that in verse 27. Here's the problem. Man sinned. They're given this, Adam's given this edict, don't eat of only one tree. Adam, you can eat of everything you possibly want to in the garden except for one tree. You ever think to yourself, man, why did God do that? Because we have no idea from the time that Adam was created to the time that they sinned how long that took place. We have no idea. All we know is it happened. You ever think to yourself, man, why why did God spend all this time creating everything if he knew what Adam and Eve was going to do anyway? If you've thought that, that's a good question. But here's what we need to understand. Here's the reason for the command that that God gives in Genesis 2, 16, and 17. Because God wants to show the joy that we can possess when we are living under his submission. God wanted to show that when you obey me, it benefits you. And God also created this this tree that they couldn't eat from because he wanted to show that joy is not experienced in begrudging submission, but joy is experienced when we obey what the Lord wants us to. Think about it. Adam and Eve were given. They hit the lottery. They're each married to a 10. They're in a garden that they can eat whatever they want except for one tree. They get to walk around 24 hours a day naked. Like, they've been given everything that's amazing, that God is not this killjoy, but he says, I want you to experience the joy that I've created you to experience. I want you to experience the relationship that I created for you to reflect my glory. But Adam and Eve sin, don't they? It says in Genesis 3, 6, and 7, we have this temptation, and Eve sees that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And it says that she gave some to her husband who was with her. I don't know if you ever got taught this bad theology in Sunday school. But for whatever reason, I always had in my mind before I really read this passage script that Adam was like doing something else at some other end of the garden. No, no, no. Adam was right there with Eve. And it says he ate. And we don't know how Satan fell. Satan was a created being. He was one of the most beautiful angels, if not the most powerful angel that was created. And, and, and Satan wanted to rebel against God. And Satan thought that he should rule. And Isaiah 14 gives us kind of a, an idea of how that fall took place. But Satan took that lie that he believed in and communicated to Eve. And it was this lie that God wants to rob you. Romans 1 says we exchange the truth for a lie. It's that lie. God wants to rob you. See, we're told in the culture that we live in, oh, don't, don't, don't do marriage the way that God's word says. Man, that's prudish, that's stale, that's old school, that's ignorant, that's, that's bigoted, it's small-minded. But what is it all stemming? God wants to rob you. Do it your own way. It's better. God wants to rob you. 
Now, some of you are in a marital relationship that is on the rocks, and what you've realized, I've tried to do my own thing, and I can attest that that's true. But some of you may not be there, and what God wants you to understand is in this fall that we're talking about, and the reason why we're talking about it, it's important to understand that lie still exists today and how we are to live out our marriages or soon to be one day or hopefully one day it will happen. See, Adam didn't step up and lead the way that God wanted him to lead. He was passive. And Adam is the one that's held responsible for sin entering the world. Doesn't say Eve. Romans 5:12 says it's by one man sin that sin entered into the world. And what happens when they sin is God's entire design for marriage is fractured. I mean, look at how God addresses Eve in Genesis 3:16. Man, that clock is fast. It says, to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, we read that, and a lot of times, wives, you get sideways, right? Yeah. But here's what I want you to understand. Your desire shall be for your husband. Here's what that means. That when sin is ruling in your life, you know what your desire is going to be? Your desire is going to be, wives, to dominate and exploit your husband's weaknesses. And we have them. And guys, when sin is ruling in your heart, your desire is going to be to want to use your strength to dominate your spouse. Then God addresses Adam in the curse that he's going to experience. And basically what he says in verses 17 through 19 is now life's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. And all you have to do is start reading the Old Testament to find how jacked up people's marriages are, as described in the Old Testament. Now, what I'm glad is that there's hope. In Genesis 3.15, Christ is referenced where it says, he shall bruise your head, God speaking to the snake, to Satan. In other words, there's coming someone who is going to do a work that is going to restore God's ideals. And see, that's what brings us to verses 18 and 19. See, there's a picture of a happy couple behind me. Not the greatest picture, it's a little distorted. But we all want this. But unfortunately, for many of us, our marriage is described like this picture. And we're at odds. And we're against each other. We're not in partnership. We're not experiencing one flesh. We're definitely not experiencing transparency and no shame. So what's the second characteristic of a marriage that exalts Jesus? Now we come to verses 18 and 19. Now that we understand God's design for marriage and how sin entered the picture and distorted it, but there's hope in Jesus Christ on this side of the cross. So what does it look like? To have a Christ-exalted marriage, well, second characteristic, there's a mutual submission between the husband and wife to live out God's desire for your marriage. There's a mutual submission. Like, this is what God's word says and how I'm to operate a husband or a wife, and I'm going to submit to it. Why? Because God wants me to experience his joy. So what does it mean for a wife to exalt Christ in her marriage? Well, what does it say? Wives, submit yourself to your husband's. Now, if there's a word that's been hijacked today, it's that word submit. I've never met a wife that's like, ooh, we're talking about submission today. Can't wait. Let me get out my pen. 
Maybe that's you, but that's probably because you understand what the word means. Here's what the word literally means in the Greek. To voluntarily place oneself under. Voluntarily. Now, here's what you need to understand in the time that Paul is writing. Some people look at Paul like, oh, he's some chauvinistic dude that wants to keep women down and exalt men, and, and he's not in with the culture of the time. No, what you need to actually understand is what Paul is writing here is revolutionary. Because in the household cold codes of the time that Paul is writing, husbands like the way that the household's root is the husband had carte blanche. What he said went, didn't matter, don't argue with it. Wives, stay quiet and just do what your husband has told you to do. So what Paul writes here is actually revolutionary because did you notice what it says? Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, but I don't see a period there, do you? I see a comma. How am I supposed to do that as a wife? As is fitting in the Lord. See, Paul's point is husbands and wives The way that you live these things out is your focus is on Jesus, not your right. See, submission, ladies, submission does not diminish your dignity or self-worth. Because if that was the case, then what do we do with a passage of Scripture like Philippians 2 or other places where it says that Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father? Same word. Was Christ less than God? Listen, if you have a church that says that Christ was less than God, pick up your kids, don't wait till the end of the service, and go home. But what did Christ do? No, no, no. This is my role. See, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are equal in Godhead. Anything less would be heresy. But how they function is different, even though we won't fully understand how how God works, one God, three persons, And so what Paul is saying here is, wait a minute, I'm not saying anything in contradiction to all the time that we spend in Genesis 1 and 2. Husbands and wives are not, one's not better than the other. They have different roles, though, in in order to make that marriage work. And roles do not diminish dignity or self-worth. 1 Corinthians 11.3 gives a design of how the authority structure works. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every woman is Christ, or the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It's given an authority structure there. Not one less than the other. See, submission does not imply inferiority. It doesn't. Galatians 3 says, there's not male and female. All are one in Jesus. One's not worth more than the other. Submission is not absolute. Listen to me. It's not this carte blanche thing. Like if you have a husband who's telling his wife to do something that's in contradiction to Scripture, you're not bound by that. You're like, well, husbands are like, wait, 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 I don't like that. Well, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, let me just, most of you may not, some of you may know that story. Ananias and Sapphira, they go sell this land, early church, and and they go into church and they have this plan that, that they're going to say that they're giving all of the proceeds to the church. But the problem is, is they're lying. They're not. Ananias goes in. He tells the apostles that that's what took place. He lies, gets struck dead. Man, that'll help generosity in your church, won't it? Sapphira must have been late to church that day because she didn't come in with Ananias. She comes in after Ananias. The apostles ask her the same question. She lies. She's struck dead. If she wouldn't have lied, she probably would have stayed alive. 
So she doesn't get to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, before I get struck dead by God, I'm just obeying my husband and submitting to him. No, 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 no. Submission is not an absolute. Submission is this. It's a matter of a wise relationship to the Lord. It's about your relationship to the Lord, ladies. As is fitting to the Lord. Because when I understand that, voluntarily taking a position of submission is a matter of my relationship to the Lord, not to my husband. I'm doing this for the Lord. Even when my husband doesn't deserve it, I'm doing it for the Lord. Now, ladies, here's what you need to understand. Most of you probably know this if you took premarital counseling, but I'm gonna, for those of you who don't, man, I'm going to blow your mind right now. The biggest need of a man is affirmation. Biggest need of a man. To be affirmed. To be given worth. And that word submit also has this idea of you placing yourself under your husband. Not in a matter of weakness or inferiority like we talked about, but it's actually a position of strength. Like nobody would walk into a house and say, yeah, you see that beam that's going across, it's holding up that roof? Yeah, that's weak. No, it's not. It's holding up the roof. I hope it's strong. That's the idea. And wives, how do you submit or hold up or support your husband? You do this by respecting them. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 talks about that. Ladies, let me ask you, how are you speaking to your husband in a way that would affirm him and support him or in a way that would tear him down? Ladies, here's, I'm going to tell you this, and I've told this to every couple that I've ever had a chance to tell to before they get married. You want to do the worst thing that you can do to your husband is to tear him down in front of others. It's the worst absolute worst to tear him down to make fun of him to say oh yeah he's not good it's the worst because that's not God's design God's design is no no we're in partnership why would I want to tear him down we're one flesh by tearing him down I'm tearing myself down respect your husband here's another thing that it looks like to support my husband being your husband's friend Titus 2.4 talks about loving your husband. It's interesting that word love actually is the, uh, is the word phileo. It's not even agape, not that there, that isn't used in other places. But it has the idea, man, we need be your husband's friend. You can't tell me that Adam and Eve weren't best friends. And you're like, well, there's only two people. There could have been more. But they was perfect, Remember? I would say, man, he's my best friend. Remember, I'm naked in front of her and I'm not ashamed. She knows all of my weaknesses. She knows all of my faults, but I'm safe with her. And she's safe with me. Wives, be your husband's friend. How about this? Wives, build your husband up. What you need to understand is when he comes home from a long day and he's, he's, something hasn't worked out the way that it is and we as men struggle. Remember, if our, if our biggest need is affirmation, we're looking from that from anything that we can find. And granted, yes, it needs to be found in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that, but we're looking for that constantly. We struggle with that. And so if I've been beat down at work and I actually say to my spouse, to my wife, man, this is what's happened. I'm feeling down or whatever. How you respond will determine whether or not they do that again. Remember, I'm going to be naked. 
Am I going to feel shame or am I going to feel like I'm built up? Now, guys, what about you? Because I haven't forgot about you. And neither has the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What does it mean for a husband to exalt Christ in his marriage? You know what it says? Love your wives. Guys, how are you loving your wife? Doesn't mean wives don't love their husbands. But you know why it says love your husband? Because we know this, many of us, the biggest need of a woman is security. And nothing gives your wife security like you loving her. It doesn't say, husbands, get your wife a bigger house. Husbands, get your wife a nicer car. Husbands, get your wife more jewelry. Husbands, buy two dozens of roses every day. No, no, no. It says, husbands, love your wives because God knows it's the way he's wired a woman for her biggest need to be security. And you have the responsibility, and I as a husband have the responsibility that my wife would say, I feel secure by his love. Not that that's replacing my ultimate security in Jesus Christ, but as a husband, I I am complimenting that idea by loving my wife as Christ loves me. That's how I love her. Which means it's sacrificial and it's selfless. That's Ephesians 5, 25 through 29. And I don't love my wife based out of what I can get. I love my wife because it's about what I give. Man, I need to romance her. Some of you guys are so slow and you're like, how in the world do I do that? I don't even know how to do that. Baloney, baloney, time out, flag on the play. Because chances are in your marriage, wives are not like, ooh, I am attracted to him and I'm going to make the first move. Most of us, our wives didn't even give us a second look. And we were like, man, I want to I romance her. I want to do certain things. I want to take her out. I want to, I wanna... man, what was your game, guys, before you got married? There's a responsibility there for that not to be gone away. And I'm to love with gentleness and humility. Stick with me. I know we've gone over. We're almost done. It says, do not be harsh with them. I love this phrase because it's not found in Ephesians 5. But it's specifically, man, what's the way that I love my wife like Christ loves me? Do not be harsh with them. That word harsh literally means bitterness. In other words, the way that I love my life is I do it in such a way that doesn't irritate her or exasperate her. But I'm providing loving leadership in the home. I've never met a wife who loves Jesus and is wanting to serve him that says, I wish my husband didn't lead at home. Never found that. I found plenty of wives that are like, I wish he would lead. I wish he'd be the one to say, man, what did you get out of your time in the Lord? I wish he would even open up God's word. I wish he would be the one to say, man, we're going to church today. See, husbands, when we don't lead the way that God desires us to lead, as is found in God's design in Genesis 1 and 2, we are exasperating and irritating our spouses. And some of you guys sit here like, man, if my wife would just submit, then maybe I would love her. But I want you to understand that if your wives are not living according to this passage of Scripture, and I don't say that to excuse you wives, but I want the husbands to hear this. Before you start jumping on her case, you need to look in the mirror and say, am I loving my wife the way that Jesus loves me? 
This is a phrase I've said before, but I want you to write it down. It's this, transparency is the currency to intimacy. You know what that means, guys? Love your wife. Pray for her. Encourage her. Speak life into her. Let her in. Let her in. I don't care if you're an extrovert or an introvert. Let her in. Transparency is the currency to intimacy. And as I close this morning, I want you to hear this. Husbands, wives, engaged, hope to be, wherever you may fall, you have the power to destroy one another. I have the power to destroy Lori. She has the power to destroy me. Because she doesn't know, she knows my weaknesses better than anybody else does. And I know hers. I have the power to destroy. But I also have the power to build up. I have the power to give life. And someone told me this and it stuck with me. That you know where your marriage is at when you can answer this with frequency. And this question, and here it is. When is the last time you said to your spouse, I am sorry for fill in the blank, will you forgive me? Because I know in my marriage, when I'm like, man, I can't even remember the last time, I am not living out God's design and desire for my marriage. And what God wants us to hear from his word today is, man, God wants your marriage to exalt him. He wants your marriage to show that you believe that Jesus is better. He wants you to believe that. He wants you to communicate that to your spouse. If you have kids, he wants your kids to say, man, mom and dad are perfect, but they got a marriage that I want one day. Man, let's live lives. Let's, let's have marriages that are not, not determined by what our culture says but about what God's word says so that we can experience the satisfaction that the Lord desires us to experience.